Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, I sit down with Dylan LeClaire, and he is someone who makes me think the future is bright. Dylan is 20 years old, and he knows more about the global macroeconomic picture than I think I ever will. He is, I'm going to read you a little bit of, a, uh, of his bio. He is the current editor of Bitcoin Magazine's The Deep Dive. He's a 20-year-old with a passion for Bitcoin and economics. Aside from his work with media operations at Bitcoin Magazine, Dylan operates a consulting business, 21st Paradigm, which aims to assist businesses and individuals to incorporate Bitcoin into their capital allocation and business strategy. And The Deep Dive, which I had not heard of, and I'm subscribed to a bunch of these things is Bitcoin Magazine's premium subscription service where they break down the on-chain analysis of the whole Bitcoin world. And Dylan is behind that. I didn't realize this thing. It's a $50 a month thing. He hands out a promo at the end. If you want to test it out, it's uh, the promo code is Rockstar. And you can check this thing out for $10 a month for the first six month, six months, I believe he said. So listen to that at the end. I'm just sharing that now because I was blown away that I didn't know about this particular newsletter. I thought I was subscribed to them all. But in case this is your cup of tea, just be aware that that's out there and he's going to share that at the very end. And if you are listening to, oh, by the way, I want to hand out his Twitter handle now. He's definitely somebody you want to hand uh, follow on Twitter just because he's 20 years old. Wait till you hear his story. Um, his Twitter handle is at Dylan LeClaire underscore. So that's at Dylan LeClaire underscore. And if you go to the show notes for this particular episode, you will find links to all the, th the things that I just mentioned here. So that's at Rockstar Inner Circle forward slash podcast. And if you are listening to this, you should know that on Saturday, October 16th, we have our next big Your Life, Your Terms event. We are doing a brand new Rockstar Economic Update. That's going to be our fall 2021 Rockstar Economic Update. We're definitely going to have a lot of fun with that. We are also doing a Rockstar Local Real Estate Market Update, so applicable to the entire Golden Horseshoe. Um, we're bringing on a couple quick guests for that as well. And then we have another guest speaker that we are bringing out for this. It's Jeff Booth. Jeff Booth is actually traveling around the world, but he's going to zoom in live to do a Q&A with us about technology and Canada's economy and what we should anticipate over the next few months and years. Jeff, if you're not familiar with him, is the author of the book, The Price of Tomorrow. Always a fascinating chat with Jeff. So we're excited for that. You can get tickets for that. And we're going to add another guest speaker. We just haven't released that yet, but you can get tickets for that event at yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's enough with this, this intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Dylan LeClaire. And Dylan, I am pumped to do this. I was just mentioning that my, my son is at university. He's going to be sharing this podcast with a bunch of his buddies. I need to understand your story. You, I know a bit of it and, and you've shared it and maybe you're even tired of sharing it, but it's a story that maps directly to your life, your terms and what we talk about. But can you tell everybody what you're doing now and what the last maybe 18 months or so has been? And then we'll dive into like monetary policy and the whole Bitcoin game and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, so thanks for having me, first off. Um, you know, I, I really love doing these podcasts and just kind of, um, you know, talking, LAS talking my book a little bit, but, you know, really just more like speaking the truth about Bitcoin is what, is what really inspires me. Um, so I guess a little background on myself. 
Um, you know, currently I'm, I work at Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, I'm the, the like director of financial market research. Um, and so we put together um, a, basically a daily newsletter um, about global macro derivatives uh, around Bitcoin and, and on-chain analytics um, and kind of like, um, you know, mesh all of those three things together and try to give a picture of, of what's happening. Um, and, you know, for the most part, you just, you can just stack and hodl, but, you know, a lot of people kind of want to see what's happening under the hood. Um, so, that, so that's what we do. Um, and that's what I'm kind of focused on day to day. Um, as far as like, as how I got here, um, 18 months ago, 20, 24 months ago, I was attending university. Uh, I was attending business school at the University of Vermont, my hometown state. Um, I, I loved school. I mean, it was awesome. Um, you know, studying Keynesian economics, um, I was kind of a numbers guy, always have been. Um, and so I just kind of figured business uh, finance was the route I, I wanted to go. Um, and as I kind of was was learning, uh, quote unquote, in, in school, um, I found myself like spending less time on homework and my lectures and the assignments that I was, you know, given and, and more time on Twitter, listening to podcasts and just reading on my, you know, on my own terms. <laughs> um, and so, you know, that that kind of trend continued on uh, throughout the first semester and into the second. And then in March of 2020, um, you know, COVID happened, they sent everyone home and it was, it was really clear just the contrast, the value proposition between, um, you know, college university completely on Zoom, taught by mostly boomers. Um, and what I kind of came to understand was a completely outdated curriculum. And a lot of the things were just, I, I identified as straight up wrong um, in terms of like the economic sense about how they define inflation or just a lot of these things that seemed very archaic um, and from first principles just didn't add up. Um, and so, um, and at the same time, like I, I stumbled upon Bitcoin uh, around 2018, 2019, like again, I was eight, uh, 17, 18 at the time. So it wasn't like, I didn't, I didn't dive too far down, um, but the more I kind of, I just started learning on the side. I had a Twitter. I was just, I was just lurking. Um, I continued to learn and I listened to a lot of podcasts, um, you know, like press and pitch, you know, great podcast, just first principle stuff. Um, I really started like, you know, kind of fell down the rabbit hole, I would say. I mean, it's pretty cliche and a lot of people say that, but, um, and, and that rabbit hole journey, I guess, was accelerated in March um, because of the, the economic environment, but also just because of how clear, you know, my, my quote unquote education, um, what the value of that was compared to what I could just learn for free. Um, and so around May to June, uh, I, I just decided to drop out, um, you know, not officially uh, at that point, but I, you know, my mind was made. And I, I decided to just drop out. I didn't, I didn't have a plan. I didn't have a job lined up. So, on how did, uh, so we'll continue there. But how did you make that? So like, what was it about the comparison between what you were learning at university versus learning on podcasts that made you think the university was going to be not as valuable to your future? Because I think a lot of people are going through that thought process. I'm just curious, like, was it just a feeling you had or was it something specific? The difference between what you were being taught by the, you know, the boomer professors that you're saying versus what you were hearing on the podcast, is there something specific or was it just an overall feeling that this was the path? Yeah. So, I mean, it was a couple of things. It was, it was one, it was like, obviously the, the zoom university thing, um, just didn't find it too valuable. Um, and like, you know, I was going in state and I got good grades. So my, you know, I wasn't paying an arm and a leg, but it, you know, it was still a, a solid sum of money. Um, and at the same time, like I, when I say I fell down the rabbit hole for Bitcoin, I like, I fell down the rabbit hole hard. I read the Bitcoin standard, Price of Tomorrow, The Sovereign Individual, which I see behind you. And I kind of realized that the, the credentialism of, of the industrial age and, and kind of, the, I guess, the, the past um, was really kind of crumbling and that, you know, the internet was dematerializing all information and that, you know, it, it really is not going to kind of matter where we're headed. So if, I mean, if I was an engineer 
or wanted to be or a doctor or something else, well, it would be, it would probably be different. Um, but I, I came to understand in March or April, my kind of thesis was the opportunity cost of everything was Bitcoin. We're at the end of this, this kind of long-term debt super cycle. Um, the only, the only way out of this is to print and we can, we can dig into that a little bit later if you want. Um, but I realized that, that, you know, I wasn't just paying for my college in dollars, but I was also paying the opportunity cost was I couldn't be a productive member of society, you know, working and I couldn't be acquiring Bitcoin. So I dropped out and I literally just picked up a manual labor construction job with, a, with my family. Um, and I, I put my head down, plugged in some AirPods and worked eight hours a day. What did your family um, say I, at this point? They were on board with your decision? Um, they knew I was into Bitcoin, like really, you know, I, I made that clear, uh, but they were uncertain for sure. Um, I was like, hey, um, you know, mom and dad, I know this sounds crazy. Um, and I, you have this dream of me uh, finishing school, but I'm dropping out because I'm going all in uh, on Bitcoin and I need to acquire as much as possible. And they definitely were very skeptical, but, you know, respected my decision. Um, and so, yeah, that's what I did. And I, you know, I just lived at home, stacked a bunch um, and I kind of parlayed that. And like what I learned, you know, through listening to eight hours of podcast a day um, into eventually into a, into a job at, at Bitcoin Magazine, just based off of, of Twitter. Um, but that took, you know, eight or nine months, but so anyone yeah, that's, that's the lowdown. It's, that's crazy. I love, like, I love the story. Anyone listening to this who was wondering what podcast you were listening to, was it all Bitcoin podcasts? Was it any on like the economy for any, anything come to mind? Cause I'm just thinking there's going to be someone else out there your age right now who would want to go down a similar path. Was it just like all the main Bitcoin podcasts? And if they want to do the same thing you did, that's what to listen to. Yeah. So, I mean, it was, it was for the most part, like Bitcoin set centric, um, you know, so like Preston's pod covers Bitcoin, but it's also like, you know, macroeconomics and, and some more like broader trends. Um, I also like with the Bitcoin standard um, and like kind of Safedine's podcast, it's again, Bitcoin centric, but um, really just like first principles, Austrian econ type things where um, completely like different, you know, from the Keynesian school of thought. Um, and my brain was, you know, like, again, I, I was approaching this as an 18 year old and I, I had no biases. I had no, like, I had no a way of thinking already. Whereas, you know, someone that's 55, right. And has, has been working on wall street for 20 years. Well, it's different. Um, but for me, I, I didn't have any preconceived notions of, of anything. And so it was pretty easy to just kind of, um, you know, work around that, um, as other podcasts. Um, I really like what Robert Breedlove does. Um, he has, a, he has a pod now, but just a lot of his writing um, and all of that just, um, yeah. And uh, Jeff Booth's book, um, he goes on a lot of podcasts, but the price of tomorrow really just, I mean, it barely mentions Bitcoin, but just in terms of what the internet's doing, what technology is doing to the cost of everything, um, you know, pushing it down to zero. And at the same time, we have this monetary system that's pushing everything the other way. Um, that was, that was, you know, those things all kind of together. Um, really just made, made the decision clear for me. And then the connection to Bitcoin magazine, were you sharing stuff like your opinions and thoughts and analysis on Twitter? And then it just naturally you connected with them. How did that connection happen? Yeah, they, um, one of the guys at Bitcoin magazine, um, Christian Krolis, uh, CK Snarks on Twitter, he reached out and he was like, Hey man, I see you just chilling on Twitter a lot. Um, you know, like we don't really, I don't really know what role you have, but, um, you know, what are you good at? And I was like, listen, man, like, I mean, I don't, I don't really know, but I love Bitcoin. He's like, all right, well, you're hired. We'll figure it out. <laughs> and so I started just doing media operation stuff, like on a part-time basis. And I started writing a little bit um, and those did really, really well. Um, and so I kind of transitioned from just doing like media stuff on the, the backside of things to doing more financial market stuff. And then 
um, now I'm, I'm leading their, their premium market product, um, on a daily basis. So, um, so yeah, cool. it's been kind of a wild ride. Congrats, man. And I just want to say as like, I'm, I'm about to turn 49, just looking at your age. Now you're doing a big service for a lot of people. I really feel the work you're doing is probably some of the highest and most important type thing that any of us can be working on. So just know there's a bunch of fans out here. Yeah. Keep doing what you're doing. Seriously. Really, really excited. Um, okay. So let's dive into some of this stuff about like why, you know, why Bitcoin. And I just did like some analysis on what you talk about on different podcasts and just on Twitter and stuff, you cover the gamut. Like right now I have a lot of respect for Luke Roman. You're going back and forth with Luke on some comments on Bitcoin, which is like awesome. And they totally make you're, you're, you're speaking some good stuff, all the global negative yielding debt. So I don't even know where we want to take this, but I think I wanted to start with, um, why do you like referring to it as the time chain instead of the blockchain? So maybe you can give everybody some context of block, you know, why, what is that? I I've only heard that coming up more recently from you and maybe a couple other times from some other people. What's, what's the point here? Yeah. So, um, you know, kind of when you're entering the so-called crypto, uh, space, uh, you'll hear, especially, you know, for someone that's new, you'll hear the term blockchain, um, thrown out a lot and it, more so in probably 2017, um, during this huge ICO boom, um, but there were, the blockchain was this big buzzword that you could throw a blockchain on some you know very average product that hasn't even launched, and all of a sudden billions of dollars of venture capital is being thrown at you, and it's being hyped up as this world-changing thing. But um, most people, I mean, even in the crypto space, don't really understand the purpose of a of a so-called blockchain. Um, and so, what Satoshi did in, in 2009 um, when he released Bitcoin. Um, was essentially he solved a problem that had been um, that it had existed in computer science for decades, um, which was a set, it was it's called the Byzantine's generals problem or the double spend problem. And essentially, what what it is is everything uh, in the digital realm can be copied. It's just all information, right? So so you know everything in the internet is just information. It can all be copied. And so when you're talking about money, well, a problem arises: is that how do I send how do I send value to you? And how do you ensure that I didn't send that value to someone else? How did, you know, that I didn't double spend that value? Um, and so that problem was solved um, through a central, uh, like a coordinator or a trusted third party. So you can think of that as a credit card company or a bank, or, you know, think of just a central you know, kind of middleman and as others, you know, uh, as the hub and there's all these like spokes off of it. Um, and so that was how that was solved because again, you know, you, th there needs to be trust in the system. There was no decentralized way to do it. So what Satoshi did, um, was was with with a blockchain or with a with a time chain, he created a, a digital ledger or well, he, you know I created in the sense that um, he released the source code and then people voluntarily adopted it. But what Bitcoin did was it it solved for this trust problem with a time chain. So essentially, there's this ledger and it ticks every ten minutes with a new block. Um, and that's you know and this is like this is pretty deep here, but you know I'll try to try to make it as simple as possible. Um, but essentially, um, through just simple economic incentives alone, uh, he allowed for value transfer to occur in a peer-to-peer -peer way, um, in, a, in a way that linked the physical and digital realm in a way that no one, no one can cheat. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of things going here, but essentially what, what Bitcoin does, what blockchain does, it, it allows for uh, basically value transfer and value storage uh, in a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer manner over the internet in an adversarial environment. Um, and so that's, that's essentially the problem Bitcoin solved. And in my opinion, that problem is a, is a $300 trillion problem. <laughs> um, uh, it's, you know, it fixes a lot of things. Um, 
and it, that's it's, it's why it's so valuable but essentially yeah like bitcoin wasn't just like the first iteration of digital money it was it, tr it was tried many times before and failed because of this this problem this coordination problem this this problem of trust and so what bitcoin solved for with a time chain was this um with was this you know system of trust that you know nobody could solve beforehand Essentially, like just hearing you explain that, essentially the only reason that I'm using a bank today to send maybe you money in an old fashioned way here in Canada, we have like interact e-transfer. So you can kind of like email, kind of like a PayPal system. Um, the only way I'm, the only reason I'm using a bank is because if I send a hundred dollars to somebody, if you know, the bank is recording that I've sent the hundred dollars so that I don't send the same hundred dollars to somewhere else. So people kind of like keep their money in the bank because, you know, that's the trusted third party that you're referring to. And now with Bitcoin, I feel like I don't really need the bank. Like I don't need the bank to serve that purpose anymore. I don't need the ledger of my own records to be there for people to trust the payment that I'm about to make for them. I can use this entirely independent thing. And the beauty of that to me is like every time I think about it, and this is where I think my brother thinks sometimes I just go crazy. Nick and I run this business together, by the way, Dylan. And uh, I'm always like, this is the best invention ever. And he's like, what do you mean ever? I'm like, no, this is like, you don't understand. <laughs> this is going to change the entire freaking world. Um, and uh, yeah, so like, I just don't need a bank. I can, you know, we can use Bitcoin. I can send you value. You can send value back to me. It's recorded. It's pure. It can't be broken. So um, the entire banking system, when I went down the rabbit hole, I just thought the entire banking system is about to be eaten. Like you're probably too young to remember the two early 2000s, but when MP3s come out, came out, like I remember Napster. Have you heard about Napster? Yeah. Probably, what year were you born? 2001. 2001. Oh my God. So in like 1999, <laughs> we were downloading songs. A buddy of mine was downloading MP3s off Napster. And we didn't realize that the format of MP3s was just going to completely upend the music industry. And I have that same feeling when I, when I saw Bitcoin, I'm like, oh my gosh, Bitcoin is to finance what MP3s were to music. Like it's totally going to flip the whole thing upside down. So, okay, I want to get, uh, I just want to get more of your views. Um, back, back to university uh, for one second. Did any of your professors, like, does any, did anyone there clue into this stuff or were they in the Keynesian model and it was just like a textbook taught course? Was anyone considering this a new form of money or no, not at that time? Uh, I asked them about Austrian economics and half of the, like my economics professors and half of them didn't know what Austrian economics was. Um, I, I asked them why they didn't offer it as a course and the other half of them said, uh, no, we, we don't, uh, we don't cover that. And so, um, that was that I, I did ask them about Bitcoin, um, a lot like, you know, I think everyone had heard about it. Um, but for the most part, you know, they remained blissfully ignorant, uh, at, at, at the worst and at best, um, just very skeptical. Um, and so I kind of realized like, you know, these so-called experts, um, are just really kind of reading off a script essentially, um, or are just regurgitating what they're reading in this textbook that's probably 20 or 30 years old. Um, and so I did ask some computer science uh, professors as well, and, and they just essentially gave me the blockchain spiel. And I was like, oh, well, you know, they're also, these experts aren't really experts. And I realized like in this space, in this Bitcoin space and crypto, I guess more broadly, there are no experts in the sense that everybody's learning this on the fly. And so that was kind of a little bit what inspired me to be like, hey, well, I mean, I might be able to just make it off of merit alone and, and just be able to kind of be a self-taught. Um, and so he's, yeah, that's, you know, for the most part, they remain clueless.
Okay. So then when you went down this deep dive and you get into seeing all this global negative yielding debt, I don't know how much of it is around the world. I feel like, you know, there's, I know there's, I, I don't know, what are, what are we at with global, global negative yielding debt? I don't, I don't know at the moment, but I know it's, it's a, a crap load. So when you see this and that it's ever expanding, what comes to mind for you when you see Bitcoin? Where is the end game here? How would you explain that to someone or what are just the thoughts that come to mind when you see what's going on in the world right now? Yeah, so off the top of my head, I think it's like $15 trillion of you know, 12 zeros, a million millions is a trillion. Um, so there's $15 trillion of, of you know, contracts essentially guaranteed to lose money around the world and Bitcoin's an $800 billion asset. So for context, um, and actually, if I could just rewind a little bit when you were talking about, you know, interme uh, intermediaries and banks and how, you know, Bitcoin is going to eat the banking system. Um, so if you if you rewind it a little bit, why are banks needed or why were banks needed in the first place? Right. So what is money? And this is a deep rabbit hole, but gold is money. Gold has been money for millennia. Um, and so there's basically two types of money. There's tokens, essentially like gold, seashells a bare asset, something I can, if I'm next to you in person, I can hand this to you. And, and tokens, um, essentially the trust uh, is that it's basically how, how hard it is to produce. And so gold one is money because relatively compared to everything else, silver, uh, copper, you know, any, any other sport, you know, sort of metal or, or a lot of other, you know, primitive monies, but um, because of other things like fungibility, durability, uh, et cetera, they weren't, they weren't really viable. So, but gold won out because it was relatively the hardest thing to produce. And so as society scaled, uh, we were on a gold standard, but as, um, as the world became more globally interconnected, it's really gold's very tough to transport. And, and if you want to, if you want to trade fast, um, it's just inconvenient. So what happened? Um, well, ledgers built on top of gold came about. And so, you know, that was, that was kind of the first iteration. And, and what people realized was, hey, people deposit this gold into a vault and I give them the IOU and they don't come back for the gold much. And so I'm just going to hand out more IOUs. And that was, that's what we know today as fractional reserve banking because, because gold had the problem of not being it. Gold is great at, at uh, maintaining value across, across time, but it's, it's very bad at, at, at transferring value across space. And so, so what, what banks did was with, with basically IOUs or certificates of deposit, uh, banknotes was they solved for gold's um, basically lack of um, you know moving moving value across space. So that that was a, it was basically you can think of it as a technological solution uh, for gold's um, for gold's failures as as money. And so you know now and that was you know 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, um, and with you know multiple bank busts and these huge um, credit contractions, gold was abandoned entirely. Uh, but you know, government money is, this is something that's only existed for about a hundred years. It's not, it's not something, you know, fiat currency has been tried, but, you know, full fiat currency on a global scale has really only been the last 50 years. Um, so this is really, you know, it's an experiment um, nevertheless. And so Bitcoin, um, you can think of it as it solves for gold's ability to, to transfer value across space and for fiat's, you know, lack of ability to, to transfer value across time by combining the the digital bearer asset the token essentially with you know because i'm transferring value from here to here with this uncorrupt incorruptible immutable ledger um so you know that's kind of blending these these two things together that's that's the beauty of bitcoin and so i went on a little bit of a, a tangent there so um you know i saw no no, that's a, no 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 that i'm happy you went on that tangent 
that's Bitcoin is better at what gold was doing. I mean, gold was a technology improvement in that it was better transferring value across space when there was nothing, when there was no Bitcoin. Like you could put a bunch of gold in your pocket and or take it on a train and go somewhere. You could carry a lot of value with you, but it was open to the bank's ability to kind of centralize it and then kind of abuse the whole system. So like it was kind of good for like it did make an improvement, but then it had its limitations. And you're right. Bitcoin just kind of was better. I never really thought the way you put it, I really like that. That Bitcoin solving gold's saleability across space, it's better at it than gold was and fiat saleability across time. So it's kind of crushing both of them at the same time. Do you understand yeah. how this hurts me? I've liked gold. I've, I've been reading about gold for so long for, uh, so th that was the moment. My moment, by the way, was March, 2020, when uh, a bunch of people mentioned Bitcoin. I had dismissed Bitcoin. Like I told people, listen, I run a business. I'm not going to take your Bitcoin. I have to pay taxes. You don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, March 2020, and I, you know, read the Bitcoin standard and it was all over. You know, it was all over. Yeah. I was like, how wrong? Oh my gosh, I've been so wrong. <laughs> I was so, how could I be that, that wrong? So, uh, no, I, I'm, I'm glad you kind of went on that tangent. So then I have another question for you since we're going down this path is that there's so many other, I like to tell people Bitcoin is money, digital money to me, and all the other crypto space is technology or platforms. And I, and I, I think of it that way. And I really try to make a big point of telling people about that. And when I look at some of these platforms and listen, I own some Ethereum and I bought it when I bought Bitcoin, didn't really know what I was doing. I'm like, oh, I guess I'll just like buy some of this stuff. Now, as I went down further into the rabbit hole, I understand the difference. And my view of Ethereum reminds me of um, software in the late 1990s, where client server software really got its start where Microsoft could produce programs called Visual Basic. And all the developers jumped on Visual Basic and there were so many Visual Basic developers because it was really easy to program in. And you could get these programs and they would install them on your computer. And there was a server in the back room and the software was running on the computer and it was called client server. But in the background, as the web was getting developed, I worked for a company called Oracle and Larry Ellison of Oracle was saying, hey, that's the wrong architecture. That's completely the wrong architecture. The better architecture is the web architecture. And the web architecture will be a thin client up front and we can do all the upgrades in the computer system in the background. And everybody will get the latest software. This client server software is not the way to go, but it was much harder to develop the web software because a lot of the protocols weren't coming out. A lot of the systems, the internet wasn't fast enough then. So client server really took off and there was tons of developers. And then around 2004, 2005, 2006, the web architecture kind of caught up and it just destroyed client server. So when I see this environment now, I can't help but have flashbacks to like, oh my gosh, Bitcoin with lightning, now with lightning taking off, Bitcoin is like the proper web architecture of money. And the fact that there's a lot of developers on some of these other platforms, including Ethereum, I'm not dismissing Ethereum, it is what it is. Like, I'm not trying to say, you know, like it can serve a purpose, it, you know, it is, it, it's doing what it's doing. But it reminds me a lot of people jumping into one area but then another architecture catches up. So when I see lightning get released and then, you know, on Twitter where I can send tips, can I send you a tip by the way? Are you set up for tips? Uh, I'm not yet. I, oh my I, gosh. Set it up. Oh my <laughs> gosh. We got to get you set up for, yeah. So I've been set in Canada. I can, we can't receive them here yet, but we can send them out. So I've been sending tips out. And when I see this happening, I'm like, this is the better architecture slowly creeping up. So is that how you see, like, do you see Bitcoin and Lightning as the money architecture very different than anything else? Can you talk about that a little bit? 
Yeah. So I, I think on the most like, you know, basic level or maybe not basic, but what, what Bitcoin did was, um, you know, so Bitcoin is money, but what Bitcoin did was essentially connected the, the physical realm with the digital realm for, for perfected value. And so, so what that means is with, with proof of work, uh, with Bitcoin mining, um, the, the 21 million hard cap, the, this um, asymptotic supply issuance um, that's already predetermined and the difficulty adjustment where essentially um, basically supply is inelastic to demand. As the price increases and more, and it gets more and more lucrative to mine Bitcoin, well, it gets incrementally that much harder to mine Bitcoin. It's essentially, you can think of it like gold, but as more and more people look for gold, well, it gets harder and harder to find. So um, I think of Bitcoin as a zero to one invention um, uh, of digital scarcity and that everything else is this kind of one to N or one, you know, um, you know, just something that's, that's trying to compete for something different. So, you know, a lot of people like to say Bitcoin and Ethereum or, you know, compare Bitcoin to um, XYZ coin and say, well, transactions per second or whatever. Well, that's completely the wrong framing in my opinion. And, and here's why, because um, Bitcoin is a monetary settlement network. What it does uh, is just store and transfer value in the most efficient way the world has ever seen. It does one thing and one thing only on the base layer that's store and transfer value. And so with a lot of these protocols like Ethereum, um, Ethereum has, has changed narratives a lot. Um, and the base, the base protocol has changed a lot. It's hard forked. Um, and that, and that's fine. There's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But uh, with, with that, the narrative has changed a lot of times. It went from uh, when the, during the ICO, Ethereum, never mind the 70% pre-mine, which uh, basically a lot of these guys got into for free. Um, whereas, you know, with Bitcoin, every single Bitcoin was mined um, with proof of work. Um, and so obviously it was, it was a lot easier to mine Bitcoin on a laptop in 2010, but it was able for anyone in the world. There was open source software. There was no, there was no pre-mine there. But just going back to Ethereum, for example, um, with Ethereum, right, it's trying to do a lot of things um, on this base layer chain. And so whether that's NFTs or DeFi or ICOs or, or you know, decentralized applications was, was a narrative. Um, ultimately, I, I honestly don't even like to comp like, you know, compare them in the same, in the same like, you know, they're not even in the same bucket in, in my eyes. Um, Ethereum is more of like a computer science project and that's fine, right? Um, and a lot of people kind of get caught up because, because Bitcoin is this dominant apex predator of, of money um, and it was the first cryptocurrency. Um, when Bitcoin goes up 10%, the crypto market a lot of times will will arise as you know a rising tide lifts all boats and with bitcoin when bitcoin tanks well a lot of these alts tank a lot more and so i think it's it's really it's it's unfortunate that a lot of people you know log on to coinbase and when they should just be buying bitcoin and saving value for themselves and they go buy xrp right because someone said well ripple does more transactions per second um when the reality is xrp is uh the centralized token that ripple labs created billions of out of thin air, right? So um, there's a fundamental difference between these things. Um, and yes, Bitcoin, Bitcoin on the base layer won't scale for transactions for everyone on the planet. And that's completely fine. Um, but you have second layer applications or, or protocols like Lightning. Um, and even, even if it's centralized in the sense that if you buy Bitcoin on Coinbase, that's a Bitcoin transaction, right? That, that is scaled on Coinbase's internal servers. And all that really matters here is that the, the base layer protocol this, this money protocol for the world is decentralized. You hear a lot of, in the crypto space, you'll hear decentralization thrown out, just like, like it means nothing. Like, oh yeah, we're decentralized. And it's coming from the marketing team that literally launched the token. Um, so, you know, that's not decentralization. 
Um, and, but what, what really matters for any sort of crypto protocol, and I think this is one of one, is that the base layer protocol is completely decentralized. It cannot be messed with, it cannot be changed. Anything on top of that, centralization on second, third, fourth layers, that's fine in my opinion. Um, and so, you know, I think Bitcoin versus crypto, um, crypto, you know, build fast and break things. And there can be a lot of like marginal improvements um, along the spectrum, right? You have Ethereum building smart, smart contracts and they're quasi decentralized. And then you have Solana or Binance Smart Chain that comes in and are more centralized and then they can do faster transactions. They're more smart contracts or whatever it is, right? Um, and they're all kind of competing in this. I, I, I think it's sort of this kind of zero sum game. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just think they, they don't really compete. It's so hard to get, you know, it's so hard to get people to go down the what is money rabbit hole. Cause I feel like if you go down that rabbit hole, you ultimately conclude Bitcoin's the winner. But when you just talk about cat, I, I find a lot of the conversation from the conversations I have is that people feel like they've missed the Bitcoin bandwagon. So they're like, oh, I'm going to buy some Ripple, not even knowing bias what, is real. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it, I kind of just, I'm always trying to hand out copies of the Bitcoin standard to anyone I meet, right? Like I'm buying a smoothie and I'm talking to the person that I'm buying the smoothie about the Bitcoin standard. You gotta read this book. So once, because once you go down and understand what money is, you get it. Like once you go down that path, yeah. that's why I love what Robert Breed loves doing the way you talk about things. Cause everyone's talking about what is money. And then we can layer on the platforms and it, all these other things like Ethereum can be what it's going to be and everything can be what it's going to be. But money is a kind of central to all of this stuff. What, where do you yeah. think we're, we're headed? I'm just kind of fascinated by your age because I think the next 10 years is going to be super interesting. And there's a group of people your age, when I, I mentioned my son, some of his friends, when everyone's starting to get, they're all starting to understand this. When I was 20, we never had these conversations. Nobody was talking about inflation. Nobody was talking about global debt. Like this is a realization I had after going to university, getting a job, realizing I wasn't going to have the freedom I wanted, having to quit my job, get into real estate, start this business. And then Bitcoin comes out around and just upends like almost everything. So the next 10 years is fascinating. When you see a Senate candidate, I think one of your tweets recently was like, oh, just another a potential Senate candidate in the US tweeting about Bitcoin. What, what, where do you think we're headed? Like if you had to map out the next 10 years, how does this play out? Like with this much global debt, that you talked about the trillions of global debt, where do you, it, and, and you know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but like play this out. Do we get more people in the US government that understand Bitcoin? Does the US government just, do we hit a hyperinflation point in the US or no? Is it, is it like, you know how Jeff Booth talks about it just kind of like, I think it's Jeff Booth, maybe it's Greg Foss. I'm talking about just like one system kind of slowly dying out and Bitcoin being the life raft and it just this other one taking over. How do you see the next 10 years playing out? Yeah, I think so. Like for, for my age group, I guess like the Gen Z Zoomers, um, a lot of people are kind of slowly waking up or, you know, they may not correctly identify the, the root cause of things, which which I, I believe is the money's broken fundamentally. Um, but a lot of people are, are fed up. They're just they're they're, you know, upset, mad, um, angry. And it's a lot of it's like, you know, red team versus blue team, like, you know, Donald Trump's evil or like, oh, I hate Joe Biden or and it's like, and, and there's a lot of angst and a lot of anger. Um, well, why but, do you so sorry, I, I hate to interrupt when you're going like that. Why do you think there's the angst? Is, is, it, is it left, right, red, blue, or is the angst coming from somewhere else? Because it feels like a young age to have that kind of angst. Yeah, I think I think in general, it's um, you kind of just see, especially um, towards the kind of end of these these big debt cycles, you have wealth inequality at all time highs or or at extreme levels. Um, and it, it's really more of a haves versus have nots game. Um, but, but, you know, that it, it manifests itself 
and whether this is this is uh, enticed by the media or not, I'm I'm not sure, and I don't really want to go down that. But it turns instead of haves versus have-nots, it's left versus right, uh, black versus white. It, it's 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 pitting people against each other when it when in reality it's 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 not that at all. It's that uh, there's a there's a class of people that are that are benefiting systematically from the debasement of of the currency. Um, and so you know essentially like the money is the baseline of all economic coordination. And so you know, when, when you work hard your entire life and you're just, you're just running on a treadmill and you, you, you're still at zero, um, versus when you look across the street and you see, you know, you know, millionaires, billionaires, et cetera. Right. Like people are like, you know, F Jeff Bezos. It's like, well, well why um, you, you, you order from Amazon eight times a day. Um, <laughs> and so like, I think in general, like the kind of the populism we're seeing, um, in, increasingly so just the divisiveness. And like, again, this isn't the U S it's global. So like, you have to think, why is this occurring? And I, and in my kind of thesis is that we're at the end of this long-term debt cycle. And so essentially like, you know, we have Bretton Woods in 1944, after World War II, everyone agrees, all right, we're gonna use the dollar for global trade, the dollar's linked to gold. Well, the US essentially kind of cheats, they run deficits, uh, they don't really have the gold to back it. In 1971, that gold link is broken and all of a sudden the whole world's using fiat currencies. Um, fiat meaning just backed by the full faith and credit, it's just basically debt money. Um, and so essentially from there, um, you know, fast forward 10 years or so, 1980, 1981, interest rates are at 20% in the US. Um, you know, there's, there's a large inflation, um, Volcker hikes rates up to 20% to curb the inflation and debt loads are pretty low. And so from here, we have essentially over the last 40 years, 1981 to 2021, we have the greatest secular asset boom of all time. Um, but really what that means is the cost of capital got squashed from 20% to 0%. Uh, and this is in just, you know, not, not real terms, just nominal terms. Um, and so with every single, you know, people know natively, like whether you study econ or not, like, oh, the business cycle, right? Like, you know, there's recessions, there's, you know, there's upswings, there's downswings. Like, even if you don't have to be an expert to kind of understand this, you know, intuitively. And so, you know, every seven or eight years or so, um, there's a buildup in debt. There's kind of a speculative activity occurs, there's malinvestment, and the credit, you know, the, this credit-based system would try to contract um, because it just wasn't sustainable. And what, what was the response globally? Um, but, you know, if we're talking about the U.S. from the Fed, well, it was the cut rates to stimulate the economy. This is kind of the, the Keynesian school of thought um, and to kind of reinflate everything, to keep the, to keep the music playing. And so we, you know, this especially picked up in kind of the, the really like the 2000s, but basically since Greenspan came in, um, you know, there was like the, the great mediation. Uh, it was Greenspan just basically every time the market had a little bit of a tantrum, he'd come in and ease things. Well, that works until it doesn't. And basically in 08, the zero lower bound was hit, meaning interest rates hit zero. Central banks like that, that's their kind of floor and they hit it and, and they, you know, they didn't really have any firepower left for their, for their main tool. So what did they start doing? And that, and that is printing money or, you know, they'll call it quantitative easing or open market operations or a lot of these things, but essentially they, they lost their main policy tool, which was, you know, the cost of capital. It was their lever. When things get too hot, you know, they could attempt to raise rates or lower rates, um, but that's all gone. And so from over the last decade, essentially, I mean, they tried to lift rates up, but basically rates have remained at zero. And so now we hit 2020, there's this huge economic crisis, you know, lockdowns, all this, and rates were already, they started cutting rates beforehand in 2019. They started expanding the Fed balance sheet beforehand. And so now their main firepower is gone. So what do they have to do? They
they print, they print, and, and this is like oversimplifying it, you know, it's printing money, not really, but yes, they're, they're printing money uh, and they print trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And, and a lot of people will be like, this is unprecedented, but in reality, we've seen these, these huge debt cycles before. Um, and essentially it's, it's, you know, it's just kind of the same playbook. Policymakers, they, they have only a, a couple tools, interest rate policy, quantitative easing, printing money. And, and the third is um, because the first two policies concentrate wealth into the hands of the few, populism arises, people are angry and they're fed up with wealth inequality and what, and what comes next. It basically a populist, um, you know, maybe not dictator, but president or leader comes into power and the people demand to get, to get, you know, to get payment. People demand for redistribution of wealth. And so that comes in the form of UBI or, or, you know, these unemployment benefits and a lot of this stuff. Um, and so we're kind of seeing this, this playbook unfold in real time. Um, and so, you know, I think, I think that the political incentive is obvious, right? No one's going to get elected on the platform of austerity. No one's going to say, we need to stop spending money. It's just not going to happen. And so the incentive is, all right, like, you know, whoever's going to spend the most, like, I'm going to vote. Oh, you're going to give me free, quote unquote, free healthcare. You're going to give me free college. You're going to give me free anything. Great. I'm going to vote for you. And so we're going to see this, this game continue to go along and along. And all it means is uh, the currency is going to continue to get debased. And so I think strategically, there will be some pro-Bitcoin and eventually everyone will be pro-Bitcoin um, politicians, right? Because, you know, there is this ultra wealthy and increasingly wealthy class of people that are global um, that support this thing. And a lot of people are increasingly becoming single issue voters. Um, I didn't vote, but I plan on voting next, uh, you know, next uh, election on a, whoever is pro-Bitcoin. And if there is none, then I won't vote. Um, and so, yeah, I think how we see this play out is um, essentially they have no option except to print. And then, you know, they're talking about the debt ceiling and they're talking about all this stuff. It's all theater. They're, they're going to print more money. They're going to expand the debt limit. They're going to continue to pass stimulus, stimulus bills because they have to. That's just the nature of the game at this point. Um, in a fiat-based, credit-based system, if they let things unwind, everything goes to zero, like literally it goes to zero. And so, yeah, I think that's just, you know, when people are kind of analyzing the political environment and everything just seems so chaotic right now, at the base of it all is that the money's broken and you have a lot of people just trying to keep the game going. You've covered so much ground there. Yeah. yeah I, I rambled I, I, a little bit. So, no, no, sorry. it was great. No, 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 it was great. I'm just wondering, you know, yeah, just wondering how long I, I want everybody that here's this to buy some Bitcoin <laughs> and just wondering how long until the currency just, you know, the value just goes down so much, but uh, yeah, none, none of us kind of really know what, what are you? So now I'm, I'm curious about some of the stuff that you do and talk about all the time. What are you seeing on, on some of the, you know, Bitcoin data points. So sometimes you share about, you know, liquid supply and illiquid supply for those people who haven't heard that before. Can you talk about some of what you're seeing? And I mean, I think that's some of the stuff that you love really doing and looking at, you do a great job at, at that. Can you talk about that and just share that with someone who's never heard that before? Yeah, so the, one of the coolest parts about Bitcoin, um, I, we, you know, we talked a little bit about Bitcoin's ledger, um, but with the way Bitcoin works, um, you basically have this transparent ledger or list of, of every Bitcoin in existence when it was moved last. Um, and it's not tied to any names, uh, but, you know, it's pseudonymous. So you'll have basically addresses uh, who, you know, and you can see, oh, this address owns 10 Bitcoin. This address owns a thousand Bitcoin. And you can see when it was last moved and you can follow these, these capital flows. And so essentially you have this, this, the most transparent money network, monetary network the world's ever seen. And so with that, 
you can you can do a lot of cool things. And so you can see like, you know, what per percent of the supply is held by long-term holders? Or what percent of the supply moves on a daily basis? And a lot of the things like that. And so, you know, what you see is essentially, um, and the classification of a, a liquid supply is there's a little bit of nuance there, but um, anybody that wants to know, you can kind of check out Glassnode or a lot of, you know, I guess follow me on Twitter and we can co cover that after, but um, about like 14, 15 million Bitcoin out of the the 18.8 million in circulation right now are classified as a liquid. Uh, essentially, they're off the market. Um, and so- Because they haven't you know, moved yeah. in how long? What's the time frame you're using for illiquid? Um, illiquid supply, so essentially illiquid supply is, um, <laughs> it, it's covering UTXOs or like, um, I guess the Bitcoin, uh, whether it's been, whether it's had an output, so whether it's been it's been spent. So essentially it's, 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 there's a lot of nuance there. Essentially, yeah, God, I, I, I can tell you're way more advanced than me. Yeah, dumb it down for me. So like if I have a wallet that I'm holding and I'm holding some Bitcoin, if I'm just holding it, but let's say I move like a hundred fiat dollars worth of Bitcoin out of my wallet, but that's all I've moved. Am I an e-liquid holder or not? Yeah, so there, there's different classifications for it. Um, and essentially, uh, that would still be illiquid, but it's it's based on like a proportional basis. Uh, what I think is easier to explain is probably like long-term holders. Um, so you, okay, you essentially it. have, you have, I believe off, off the top of my head, you have uh, about 15 million Bitcoin that are held by long-term holders. And that that time frame is 155 days. And so 155 days is, is the cutoff because um, essentially there's a statistical relationship with how long a Bitcoin has been held versus the, the probability that it's spent. And the longer it's held, the less likely it is to be spent in the future. And so the this 155 days is like a statistical, uh, statistically significant uh, point in time. And so what you're seeing right now is like the, the long-term holder supply is at all-time highs. And so, you know, despite the volatility, despite all this stuff, you know, 155 days from now is essentially like, I think it's late April um uh you know back backtracked so you know you have an all-time high amount of amount of supply held by these these strong hands despite undergoing a you know over 55 60 percent correction in, in between and so you know the volatility like especially for people that have been in bitcoin for not one year but two years three years four years ten years whatever it is like it's nothing but a thing right like volatility is nothing to me when i'm up three thousand percent right um you know i'm not talking about myself but um, you know, that's just kind of the dy dynamic here and every single day, like I buy every day, you know, it's not, not a lot, but just like I have an income and I, I save and I, I buy Bitcoin and I don't sell it. Um, and there's a lot of people that do this on a much bigger scale than I do. And there's a lot of people that do it on a little bit of a smaller scale than I do. But the trend is more and more Bitcoin, the free float, the supply is decreasing every single day. And so a lot of the stuff that I look at, you can kind of quanti quant quantify that and visualize it. And it, it's, it's really interesting. So when you're analyzing this data, are we entering a period where you've, you're saying we've not seen this much long-time holders or liquid supply or both? This is like a unique time where we haven't seen this kind of ratio from the long-term holders to the non-long-term holders um, before? Is this like a unique moment we're seeing? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, in terms of uh, like the on-chain trends, it's, it's among the most bullish that, that I've seen. Um, and so I think just what's happening with the price when you're saying, oh, you're super bullish, but um, you know, the price was at 64,000 in April and now it's 41 or 42, whatever it is, what, what's the deal? Um, and I think it's a couple of things is that one, um, in, in April, a lot of it was basically derivatives led. So you had a lot of people and derivatives, meaning um, essentially uh, you can kind of, you can take your Bitcoin and you can le leverage up. I can take my one Bitcoin and I can get 10 Bitcoins worth of buying power. 
Um, but the deal is if it goes that the price runs down 10%, then I lose everything. And so you had a lot of people in, in the, you know, January, February, March, April timeframe continuously levering, leveraging up their, their Bitcoin position with, with their Bitcoin. And so that was a, that was a pretty profitable bet until the market saw a downturn. And so when that happened, you saw a lot of people get wiped out. And so that was kind of why we saw such an aggressive pullback. And so now at 41,000, um, I think the, su the supply dyna uh, demand dynamics are, are extremely bullish, but you just have less of a speculative kind of mania, which is healthy, which is good. Uh, and two, and, and you should, you know, as a, as a Bitcoin accumulator, you should, you should, you know, celebrate that. Um, and two, I think you just have a little bit of macro uncertainty. You know, there's, there's a lot of stuff happening with, with Evergrande, which is this huge real estate developer in China. There's just kind of people are worried about, you know, the knockoff effects, a um, little bit of risk off in, in equity markets and stuff. And so, you know, Bitcoin over the long term, there's this, there's this trend. Bitcoin is global money and the, and the world is slowly catching on. And so Bitcoin's monetizing and, you know, the volatility and correlations and all that, it doesn't matter. You know, it's we know what's going to happen here. But on the shorter time frame, um, you know, just like say March of 2020, um, equities sell off 30% and Bitcoin sells off 70% and drops 50% in a day, right? That's just, that's all, you know, that's because of the credit dynamics in the legacy world. That's because of, you know, this, this huge debt bubble we're in. And so what's the response anytime something like that happens though, is they have to blow it back up. They have to reinflate. And so these day-to-day -day things are, you know, week to week, month to month. Bitcoin gets cut in half from here, like I'm a buyer and I'm a, I'm a you know, like I'm an ecstatic buyer. Um, so I don't really worry about that. And, and when I'm looking at these trends on chain, I, I just, I get more bullish every day. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's almost like as people get more and more educated on this, you know, what money is and if Bitcoin meets whatever their criteria of what money is, they decide to buy it. And then if they're buying it for those reasons, as like the purest form of money, they're holding it. You know, if some people are just kind of speculating, sure. But once more and more people or as more and more people just get educated on what money is, it feels like the accumulation is just going to continue. So it's going to be an interesting end to this year. I'm sure you follow a plan B stock to flow model. And I just look at that thing. And sometimes I'm like, is it really going to pop? Like this model says it's about to pop here. And then I see some of the things that you're putting out there on the, you know, liquid supply. I'm like, I think this thing's going to pop, but it's fascinating. Either way, I'm a happy buyer. Like you're a happy buyer. So, you know, it's just kind of like all, uh, all upside. I think I just want to have a good form of money. Um, I wanted to ask you about just the hash rate, because I think that's a really important thing. And you do a really great job of explaining that. I don't think most people understand kind of the importance or, you know, what it's all about. And I feel like I haven't given you a much of a break. You've been talking the whole time, which has been fantastic. But uh, can you just outline like your thoughts on the hash rate, how you would explain that to somebody, the importance of it? Yeah. So hash rate is essentially it's it's like the total computing power um, that's that's competing to, to mine Bitcoin. And so, um, I mean, I guess to simplify it or dumb it down, you can think of like how many excavators are going to mine gold in the, you know, in the trenches. I mean, that's maybe a bad comparison, but essentially um, you have um, over, over the last decade, you've seen a, I don't even know off the top of my head, like a trillion percent increase in, in, this, in this hash power, in this, in this basically race to mine blocks in this probabilistic, manner every single, every, like every 10 minutes, right? Um, and so blocks are, are spent, you know, are, are on average coming in every 10 minutes, but it, there's this basically race to, to mine Bitcoin. And so to, to dumb it down a little bit, essentially like, you know, guess a number between one and a hundred. And so, you know, you're just going to guess one after the other, after the other, and eventually you'll hit, and then the race starts again and again. 
And if, if blocks are coming in you know, at a faster rate than every 10 minutes, then in about two weeks or you know, in, in 2016 blocks, there's going to be an adjustment and it's going to become harder to mine Bitcoin. Or if, there's, if blocks are coming in slower than, than every 10 minutes because the hash rate has decreased, then, then difficulty will adjust downwards. And so essentially what you have is, is over the trend over the long term is the price of Bitcoin has risen, obviously. It's risen exponentially in a, in a you know, parabolic manner. And so there's an increasing, increasing economic incentive to go mine this thing, right? Because I can essentially sell electricity um, uh, and computing power to the Bitcoin network um, and, and receive uh, more, more value than I kind of put in. You know, I can receive more output than, than the input. And so uh, especially as the Bitcoin price you know, increases in a parabolic manner, it becomes increasingly uh, profitable. The incentive rises. And so you see more and more and more hash power um, essentially coming on to mine this thing. And what it does also um, is it basically secures, secures the network. Um, you know, there's what's called a 51% attack. If, if, if there's, you know, 51% of the hash rate, which is an absolute, you know, massive amount of not only electricity, but computing power, it's, I, I honestly don't think it's feasible, it, but if 51% of the, the network was um, essentially controlled by, by one entity, th uh, there is potential for malicious kind of um, actions to be taken. But um, that, have, that hasn't happened in the history of Bitcoin, um, but it has happened on like say a lot of altcoins. So, you know, there, there is um, this kind of the immutability of Bitcoin, the reason that it can't be corrupted and that this, that this ledger um, of, of truth uh, is, is so incorruptible is because there is basically the biggest computing network in the world um, that's securing it and that's supporting it. And, and it's just, you know, it's just off economic incentives alone, which is the most beautiful thing, right? Um, we talked about the, this Bitcoin is essentially, it connects the, the digital and physical realm. Um, but so, you know, what you have here is essentially now uh, at a global scale with just as, you know, just as much as a satellite signal, any sort of wasted energy, any sort of excess energy, which there is an absolute massive amount of, whether it's, you know, methane on a gas field, um, like, you know, what's your buddy, what's your buddy Greg's doing or solar yeah. or hydro. The province of Quebec here, I'm pretty sure sells, you said you're from Vermont. I'm pretty sure the province of Quebec sells electricity to Maine or something because they have so much on yeah. the grid that they need to get rid of it. So yeah, so, it's totally yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. And yeah, like Bitcoin doesn't waste energy, it uses wasted energy, which a lot of people don't understand. Don't get it. Yeah. It just kind of drives me batty. Okay. So we're a real estate brokerage. You've had some comments on real estate. Why? And I just want you to have at it. Just tell us the truth of what you think you do not hold back. So like, you know, what, We've been using real estate as a vehicle, like you buy some rental properties, you get the benefit of, you know, the low interest rates, the asset bubble. And there's obviously been a monetization effect of real estate. Real estate has become yeah. monetized. I don't know if you followed Canada, but definitely up here in Canada, real estate has yeah. become monetized. And to me, the way I'm thinking about it, like it, it creates cash flow. It's a bit of a business. Bitcoin's this now form of money. So you should kind of be playing in both worlds. Um, is your thought at 20, you're 20, right? Is it 20? Yeah. 20. At 20, yeah. are you like, forget the real estate entirely, just go all out in, into Bitcoin. And I don't want you to hold back because I know you know that we were in real estate, but I just want, I want to hear it straight from you. What, what's your thoughts? Yeah. So <laughs> at, at 20 years old, I'm definitely not going to allocate any capital to real estate. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons. Um, one is that essentially, I think uh, with real estate, um, maybe not in nominal terms, but in real terms, um, the, the, you know, the lemon's been squeezed, um, basically in its entirety. So, uh, with, with interest rates at 0% and, and with real rates, 
um, basically, you know, the interest rate divided or minus uh, the inflation rate, real rates are, you know, deep in the negative. Essentially, um, you know, the price in real terms can't really rise that much more. And so with, with you know, if you bought real estate in, in 1990, well, as, as interest rates got squashed from 10% or whatever they were down to zero, you saw a huge increase in like the present value of that asset. Um, and that's same with, with real estate equities, bonds, any, any asset with, with a cash flow. Um, as, the, as this kind of coupon gets squashed, um, the, the value of the asset increases. Um, so that's one. And two is that I think, um, you know, the 2020s are going to be an, you know, an interesting decade. Um, I think it's, you know, I hope not, but I think it may or may not be chaotic in the, in the political sense. Um, and so I think with real estate, you have, there's a lot of risks there in terms of um, political regimes, um, in terms Taxes, of jurisdictions. Yeah taxes. Um, and so, you know, I prefer, uh, as Michael Saylor might say, I prefer digital real estate. Um, that, that is kind of, you know, uh, I don't, it's Didn't not you really say try to tax the 12, uh, the 24 words, was it 12 or 24, 24 words in my head, Janet Yellen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, with Bitcoin, I, I can take all of my wealth anywhere I want, uh, anywhere in the world. And there's no, there's no counterparty risk there. There's no management. There's no, there's no, um, you know, tenant that's going to be squatting, uh, on my asset. And so, you know, I, I honestly think, over the next decade, real estate will continue to go up in dollar terms. I think that's a pretty, pretty sure. good bet to yeah. me. They might um, extend but, amortization but, schedules to get the population be able to buy it, push out the thing even further and further. For yeah, agreed. But in Bitcoin terms, like so, I, I measure I measured my college cost in Bitcoin terms. I did, and you know, volatility aside, like I can handle volatility. I'm 20 years old, but I measure everything. I measured my college education. I measured the car I might want to buy. I measure the you know, anything that I, I'm interested in buying equities, right? Like I think Amazon's a great company. I'm not going to buy Amazon for 40 million Bitcoin. Well, new slasher is only 21 million Bitcoin. So it's not a good investment. And so I think when you're looking at anything, if you're looking at, you know, denominate it in Bitcoin and see how it performs over the next decade. And I think you might be vindicated. Yeah. So, cause the price of real estate has been coming down. If you hold some Bitcoin, the price of real estate has been coming down in Bitcoin. You've been kind of gaining. So, uh, yeah, so you're using it as I you're think a good play. Maybe if 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 you if you do hold some real estate that you you know fully own, I think a fantastic play would be um, oh totally to, to refinance yes. at two three percent four percent secured by your real estate and to to stack some stats. Yeah, stack yeah, we have a lot of clients in that particular exact situation, and uh, I think I think nice. more and more of them are having that that thought, right? Um, and that's a way they can balance out having some cash flow, pay for the existing, you know. Know, refinance, pull out some debt. And it kind of goes to Greg Foss's point, right? Like borrow it like 2%, put it into some Bitcoin. Fiat dollars are kind of melting in the whole bit. Um, Dylan, man, you are articulate with this stuff. I wish I was as articulate as you are with this stuff. You're doing a great job, man. Just really keep doing what you're doing. I don't know how to support you best other than to promote you and share your Twitter handle and make sure people are following you. So can you please share a Twitter handle and anything else you want to share about yourself? Where can people kind of like track you down? Yeah, so I mean, day to day, I hang out on Twitter. Um, you can just find me at Dylan LeClaire underscore um, you know, what I do basically on a day-to-day -day basis, um, aside from hanging on Twitter and just kind of sharing my thoughts is, uh, we produce the deep dive, uh, for Bitcoin magazine, which is the financial markets product. Um, and so, uh, if anyone wants to check that out, uh, you can just find that on the Bitcoin magazine, uh, website. And we, uh, we actually put out a, a discount code, uh, rockstar. Um, so that's, it's 10, 10 bucks a month for six months. Um, we, we put out 20 pieces of content, uh, a month. So, you know, a lot of stuff just on, 
on-chain, kind of what we were talking about briefly, uh, derivatives and, and kind of the global macro environment. Um, and so if you kind of want to get a little bit of a, a look at what's happening on like a quantitative sense, um, definitely, you know, check that out. Okay, cool. And so if I go to bitcoinmagazine.com, is the deep dive, like, is it pretty obvious where to click to kind of get to that? Yeah, it's on the it's on the top right. I mean, I can I can send you a link, and I can also just hook you up with a sub. I mean, that's no problem. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's uh, that's cool. And the discount code is Rockstar. Rockstar. And repeat. What is it? What is the discount code? Uh, get everybody again. Um, so it gets you. It's just for ten dollars a month uh, for six months. For the first like, six months. It's a pretty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah awesome. Okay. Um, I really think I didn't know you were going to do that. Totally. Thank you. We'll put the, so if you're listening to this while you're driving at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash podcast on Dylan's podcast episode in the show notes, we'll have the URL for that. We'll have the uh, discount code for that. And uh, Dylan, anything you're doing in the future, if you want to kind of share the message and, you know, hit a different audience or whatever you're doing, I really want to support you in the best way possible and know that there's a bunch of fans here that are cheering for what you're doing. So keep doing what you're doing. You're really having, Tom, I appreciate it. Yeah. You're having a big impact. And listen, if you have Greg Foss kind of cheering your name on, you gotta be careful. Have you, wait, I forget. Have you met him in person yet? Yeah. I met him in Miami. Okay. You did. Okay. All right. Okay. Yeah. He's a ball of energy. So Dylan, thank you so much. Really, really appreciate this. Uh, appreciate you taking the time and uh, appreciate you doing all the work that you're doing. Thank you. I'll catch you later. Hey everyone. So hopefully you enjoyed that chat with Dylan. I, I still can't believe he's 20 years old and breaking down the global macroeconomic picture the way he is. It just makes me think the future is bright. Remember, you can follow him on Twitter at Dylan LeClaire underscore underscore. The promo code is Rockstar for the deep dive subscription that's regularly $50 a month. You can get access to that at BitcoinMagazine.com. That's BitcoinMagazine.com. Look for the deep dive. And if you put in the promo code Rockstar, you can get access to that. I think he was mentioning the first six months is $10 a month with that particular promo code. And if you want to check out our event on Saturday, October 16th, you can get all the details and get tickets for that at yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's yourlifeyourtermsevent.com. That's enough with this episode. Until next time, your life, your terms.